0: on mobile announced this week that it's moving its headquarters to the Houston area, which will make it the biggest Fortune 500 company located here. Why are their top execs leaving Irving, Texas, and what does it mean about the long-term prospects of Houston's oil companies? Today, I'm talking with CityCast contributor and business expert Lawrence Steffi. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Why is ExxonMobil moving its headquarters to Houston?
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, the company had always kept the headquarters separate because they didn't want to have undue influence over, you know, the U.S. operations, which were based here. It's a global company. Um, But I think a lot of it is just, you know, the economics, Uh, you know, it makes sense to kind of consolidate. They've got a fancy new headquarters here in the Houston area.
0: That big campus out in spring.
1: Yeah, it's like you're paying for a lot of real estate. And of course, these days, you know, with more and more remote work and stuff, you know, you don't need as much space. So I think it's probably something when you look at the way they've aligned these three divisions, it kind of. The need to keep the the headquarters operations separate is just really no longer a factor, I think.
0: Yeah. So there was a lot of talk when I was reading the news about reorganization, that they are realigning to emphasize, you know, this carbon neutral future. Do you see that? I mean, from what you've seen, what you've
1: read? I see that they're doing it. I mean, I see that they're realigning, yeah.
0: Yeah, do you think they can pull it off?
1: I mean, look, the jury's out, right? Like, they only announced it a few months ago. It's not like there's been time to really see what they can do. Exxon is has been kind of late to the table with this. A lot of the European oil companies have been way out in front on moving to a low-carbon future, net zero, all this stuff. The big problem for oil companies when they try to talk about net zero and everything is that really, in order to get to the goals that they're talking about, you're going to need some sort of magical technological boost, you know, whether it's carbon capture or whatever, things that we don't actually have yet that aren't working on a commercial scale. And so I think that's a real challenge for them and everybody else in the space that's talking about this is it? it's a lot harder than it looks.
0: So is Exxon finally trying to do that stuff now? Because... Last year, activist shareholders voted those three pro-environment board members in. Was Exxon forced to do it?
1: Well, look, Exxon has always been the favorite villain. You know, ever since the Valdez bill, they've been the favorite villain of environmentalists, right? You had the, remember the guys in tiger suits that were climbing on the the roof of the building in Dallas and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff going on at the annual (laughs) meetings and everything. Part of the reason they're a favorite villain is they have been more reluctant to make these moves. I've always thought that has less to do with their actual views on things than it does with their corporate culture, which is much more cautious,
0: so they have changed a little here and there, right?
1: Yeah, they did eventually come around to the idea of a carbon tax, for example, in the late 2000s, but by the time they decided that was where they stood, everybody else had moved on and was talking about you know cap and trade and things like that. you know interestingly, now we're coming back to a carbon tax you know we more talk about a carbon tax. I think that part of it is they're just... Exxon's a really, really big company and they just don't do anything quickly.
0: Yeah. They've got like, what, around 70,000, 75,000 employees worldwide?
1: Yeah, yeah. They're like the 10th largest company. I think they're number 10 on the Fortune 500 right now. So it's a big ship to turn. And given the fact that they have always had a very sort of analytical culture, it's just not something they're going to do fast. It It is also... Something where, you know, as a result, they are kind of trailing a lot of their European competitors on some of these initiatives.
0: So those top executives, I hear them called the god pod. (laughs) Is that maybe everybody calls their top executives the god pod, but is moving them to Houston going to change that culture? I think of Exxon as being more insular than even other oil companies. You know, they're out in spring. They're not downtown hanging out with everyone else. Is that one of the other things that makes them cautious and slower to change?
1: Yeah, it, it is a very insular culture. They, they tend to promote from within. And, and so I don't think that's going to change, moving the executives down here. Interesting note about the godpod term. I, I don't know this, you know, I haven't researched the history of the term, but I first heard it in reference to EDS when, and when they were still in Plano. And their headquarters actually had like a five-story bridge between two buildings where all the executives were and, and of course, it was built in the Ross Perot days, so it could literally be sealed off from everything else in the event of an attack or whatever. And that's why it was called the God Pond, because it was literally suspended in space <laughs> over the rest of the headquarters. You know, the Exxon campus, it's kind of a, a spread out, you know, low rise uh, building. So I, I don't know that the term really has the same meaning, but, uh, <laughs> but it has been used nonetheless. So...
0: so- What kinds of things are the European companies doing that you haven't seen Exxon and other American energy companies doing yet?
1: Yeah, I mean, the main thing is you've seen a lot of investment in renewables. You know, both BP and Shell have been very active in buying a lot of wind assets, for example. Shell has pretty much said, you know, their future is all going to hinge on on natural gas and renewables. They're not going to be acquiring oil assets anymore. In fact, they've been selling a lot of oil assets it's a pretty stark transition. I mean, again, it's early days and we'll see if anybody right. you know, actually gets this done, but their intent at least has been a little more pronounced than what we've seen from Exxon. We'll see.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're really asking them to completely change the products they're selling. It, that's a huge turnaround.
1: It, it's actually more than that. We're, we're asking them to basically stop selling the things that make them the most money. Which is not something companies have a lot of. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not a great business model. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you're asking them to change their business model at a time when the oil prices are pretty good, right? They're pushing ninety dollars a barrel.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think you see this with government policy too, right? I mean, you know, the Biden administration came in; they really wanted to push renewables, de-emphasize oil, and then you know we get into this situation coming out of the pandemic where. Well, you know, oil prices are spiking and suddenly, you know, you're having to ask the Saudis to pump more and you're letting oil out of the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and all these sort of fallback things that politicians did 20, 30 years ago. And it and why is that? Because the economics, it's not going to be a straight line and they're not going to cooperate. You, you know, you've seen this with, with the Biden administration wanted to push renewables and, and you know, wanted to, to kind of incentivize You know, this energy transition. But in the short term, that can't happen. I mean, we we have this spike in oil prices that presents, you know, immediate economic problems for the administration. And so, you know, you're sort of in this weird situation where. You're wanting, you know, U.S. producers to produce more and we, we actually need to increase oil output at the same time we're trying to move away from it. And it just shows that the economics aren't going to be a straight line. You know, the economics aren't necessarily going to cooperate with our plans for how we want to do this. You know, and I think for companies like Exxon, it's it also kind of serves as a reminder that, you know, there's still a lot of money to be made in oil and gas. It probably will be for, for years to come. So,
0: yeah, so when I'm thinking about Houston's economy, I don't have to freak out just yet.
1: Not just yet. And and actually, I don't think you have to freak out at all. Houston's economy is going to be just fine because Houston's economy is where the brain trust is based, right? It's where all the big thinkers in the industry are based. And a lot of those people are already starting to think about how to manage this transition. They're forming companies to take advantage of that. I mean, you know, Houston is going to continue to lead in the energy space, whether it's you know, fossil fuels, renewables, whatever. I mean, I, I think that uh, Houston's going to be just fine.
0: Oh, OK. I feel so much better now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could ease your mind. I don't know.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Lauren, for talking with us.
1: Sure. Absolutely.
0: All right. It is time for some Houston news. Uh, I'm here with producer Dina Kesba. Dina, what is going on? All right. So today, all I'm reading about is the weather.
2: So that's going to be our focus today. All my stories are weather related. (laughs) Should I be scared? I think maybe yes, (laughs) but we'll see in the end what you feel. Okay. So what's going on? So the first one is about this big freeze coming towards Texas. So I read that ERCOT had issued a watch for an extreme weather event with possible icing conditions as an Arctic cold front blasts through tonight. That's what they said, literally, as a watch. Oh, and,
0: and ERCOT, those are the people who run the Texas grid, right? Right. So remember last year's freeze? Oh, boy, do I. <laughs> <laughs> I was shivering in the dark for days. So... Does that mean they're afraid the grid will go down again? So the thing is, there's no, like, specificity
2: around this. You know, unfortunately, it's just a watch. It'll start tonight and it'll continue through Sunday. I mean, there was a press conference that happened on Tuesday on the Texas preparations for the winter weather. And Governor Greg Abbott said yesterday that no one can guarantee that there won't be a, quote-unquote, load shed event. So...
0: Load shed, meaning they might turn my lights and heat off again? Yeah, it's a possibility. Oh, okay, I hope it's not too cold. I know. I mean, the scary thing
2: that I also kind of read <laughs> into a little bit more was that ERICOT issued a projection last Friday that showed that the electricity demand could be near record levels starting today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, the wild oh. thing is that You know, this demand that they, you know, this projection that they published basically projected that it's expected to hit nearly 73 gigawatts, but that peak demand during last year's winter storm was 77 gigawatts. So that's kind of scarily
0: close, right? Right. And last time all those natural gas plants thought they could stay online, but remember we did that show a few weeks back Mm -hmm. where Sergio Chapa from Bloomberg was telling us that Really, a lot of them haven't made big changes. Yeah. Unfortunately, that remains true. Okay. So I'm hoping it doesn't get very cold out where the natural gas is being pumped. Yeah. Okay. So you said you had some other weather news?
2: Yes. So I read this really cool story about the world's longest lightning strike, which was reported over Houston. Oh. It was 477-mile-long flash which is a whole new record for horizontal lightning. The previous record was about like 441 miles long, and that was across parts of southern Brazil, which was recorded on like October 31st, 2018. The one that was recorded over Houston stretched from southern Mississippi to like the Corpus Christi area. Wow. And it was detected by the geostationary lightning mapper instrument that's just kind of hanging out on a weather satellite that was launched into space back in 2016. Wow, that is cool.
0: All right. Thanks, Dina. That is it for our show today. If you don't already subscribe to our newsletter, please sign up. It is at houston.citycast.fm. We will be back tomorrow. See you then. (laughs) Do I need to say anything else? I guess (laughs) that's it. We did it.
2: We somehow managed to do it, even though our Zooms were not linking. (laughs)